Uh, thank you once again to Bob and the team as they make their way off the stage. What a privilege it has been to be able to worship. And what great songs to start with today. A reminder to us that the Lord's name is to be blessed no matter what our circumstances and that there is no other name but the name of Jesus. Let's pray as we continue. God, we give you thanks that we can worship you wherever we might find ourselves today. We give you thanks that your ears are attuned to the hearts of your people at all times and in all places. And as we continue today to gather in whatever form that might look like, we thank you that your church continues to push back the gates of the kingdom of darkness for you are advancing your kingdom always in all places you are the victorious one the name above all names and we glorify and honor you now in jesus name amen well it has been um, a privilege always and continues to be to welcome you wherever you happen to be to our service today we have a smattering of folks here who are part of our service uh, and many of you who are in your homes and in not just Albury or Wodonga but far afield too and so we welcome you wherever you might be we kind of are in some senses on the run-up towards Christmas now as as the year is rapidly um, unwinding before us that's a scary thought isn't it how many sleeps until Christmas who would know um, but it's not that far away I have um, had some uh, interesting times yesterday I was working at home for a little while in my garage welding some materials together and ran out of welding supplies and so I thought just around lunchtime I'll slip down to um, a certain hardware store that I spoke about last week and chucked a few dollars in my pocket just so I could get myself a sausage and much to my dismay when I got there discovered that the, the, um, there was some irony in this if you were with us last week there was some irony in this because uh, the very people who I have some philosophical difficulties with were running the barbecue and so I came home hungry again um, but that was just my own fault I guess um, but it just reflects how um, our values uh, guide us and direct us and so too um, as a church. I have uh, written in the newsletter just how we will respond to the ongoing challenge of gathering restrictions. Last year we adopted a very cautious approach in regathering and we're going to continue to do that again this year. Um, the roadmap here in Victoria suggests there might be some opportunities for us to regather in some form later in the year but for the moment we will adopt a watch and see approach continuing to offer our services online encouraging people to remain connected however you're able to under the law and uh, and comply with the current restrictions while protecting those who are vulnerable amongst us across the whole of our congregation I'm mindful though that many people are desperately keen to get back together and so am I. Trust me when I say it's lovely to be here with um, some today who have been putting the service together. But it's nothing quite like being with a congregation. It's not the same in any ways uh, by comparison. Uh, pretty much every ministry of the church has been impacted one way or another, but we want to encourage creativity in this space and innovation in the face of ongoing restrictions because in that we believe we will find some new wineskins that will bring us life and hope. And one thing that really does excite us is the possibility that over time uh, we will explore more organic expressions of church too. What does it mean to be the people of God uh, in our community and neighbourhood over the uh, 
um, the more traditional institutional expressions and I'll speak about that over the next few weeks. In short, this season provides us with lots of opportunities to be the church. So rather than putting uh, our time into looking like the church, we can be the church. We're going to pray. It's an important element of our worship and I invite you to join me as we pray, uh, particularly for those who um, are struggling again at present. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can come to you in prayer and we do so with much humility because we know that you are God and we are not. And our understanding of all of the circumstances that uh, affect us at this time is limited by our capacity as human beings, but not for you, God. We thank you that you are sovereign, that you are powerful, that you are Lord, that you are working out your purposes. Lord, today we would pray, uh, we're just so mindful of, of what's in our news at the moment. There are so many people who are struggling in the face of this current crisis that we continue to face. We know that there are over 1,000 people across Australia in hospital with coronavirus. Today, something in the order of 287 in ICU. That's very serious, Lord. And we would pray for them. We would pray for those who care for them. A difficult job. We pray for those who work in this field, not just in terms of caring for those uh, facing this crisis, but across our healthcare profession, nurses and staff and others, for their work environment has been challenging uh, through this last few years. We think of those too who are in hospital for other procedures, for other needs, for other emergencies, who perhaps because of the restrictions have been isolated from family and friends and visitors, and that makes it so much harder for good recovery to take place. Lord, we uplift those people before you and those who have found this difficult. We thank you, Lord, that you are able to undertake for them too. As we have in the past, Lord, we pray for our government, for our leaders, for those who make decisions and for those who advise them, that their advice would be wise and timely and well-grounded. Lord, we have been encouraged uh, by the way that you have been at work through this time. We continue to pray that you will work out your purposes to grow your people and grow your church through this season. And so even as we have just spoken now, we pray, Lord, that you will help us in the face of not being able to do what we normally would do to be creative, to be innovative, to think of new ways of being your church, of reflecting the values of the kingdom, of following in the footsteps of Jesus, of caring for those who are weak or who are vulnerable, for watching out for those who are struggling, for encouraging those whose footsteps are falling or failing, for those whose faith has been challenged. Father, we recognise that in this season there's been opportunities too for many others have turned and said, wow, we live in a world that uh, we can't control. This is uh, a tiny virus that has upset everything that we've known. And so we've suddenly been made aware that as humans we can't control everything and we need to, de to defer to a power and authority higher than ourselves. And we turn to you, Lord, in that. Father, may your kingdom advance through this time, we pray. And Lord, today too, as we come to our Bible reading uh, from 2 Thessalonians, we thank you again for your word, for what it will teach us. We pray, Lord, that you will give us ears open to hear what you're saying to your church today. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our Bible reading today does come from 2 Thessalonians. It's uh, chapter 2. We'll read through the whole chapter. It's a chapter that is at once one of the most challenging of all of the chapters or passages that the Apostle Paul wrote. And so scholars through the ages have blunted many pencils trying to figure out what Paul was saying here. We're going to try and make some sense of it, but let's read it through first. So we start with the passage and uh, find encouragement in it. Paul says this, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him, we ask you this, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until a rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow and with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. And may the Lord open our eyes and hearts to what he wants to say through this passage today. Well, as a young person, I had a friend who had a little Toyota Corolla uh, and stuck on the dashboard of that Corolla on the passenger's side was a sign which said something to this effect. Warning, the driver of this car might disappear without notice at any moment. It was an interesting little sticker, frightening at one level. Uh, if you sat down and you read it, you thought, wow, what's uh, going on here? But it was actually um, stuck there as a, a conversation starter, ideally to start a conversation with whoever the passenger might have been about the coming of the Lord Jesus, who, according to Paul, who wrote in a passage we looked at a few weeks ago, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, that Jesus would come like a thief in the night. 
And as I've thought about it, there is some truth in that, certainly some truth in that for the unbeliever, because again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, Paul did say that people, those who don't know the Lord, will be going about saying peace and safety when destruction will come upon them suddenly. But Christians, Paul said, should not be surprised when this day comes, for we are called to be alert we are called to be self-controlled, advice that Paul fleshes out for us in this passage that we're going to look at uh, as we come to it today. The second coming of the Lord Jesus is not front and centre in Western Christian theology in our day like it has been through history. And just last week, even at the conclusion of our service, some of us here were discussing how back in, was it the 70s, the early 80s perhaps, there was a sharp rise in the uh, second coming, perhaps because of the seismic shifts that were taking place in Western culture at the time. But over more recent years, I suspect that teaching on the second advent, the second coming of Christ and the excitement or the anticipation of that has been perhaps pushed aside by more immediate concerns driven by what we might call consumer Christianity. You know, people want to know how to raise godly children or have a godly marriage and those are important things. But to some degree, they have pushed out concerns about uh, escalation or end times or the return of Jesus. We don't look for the return of Jesus because our circumstances are pretty good and so there isn't that same urgency that there may have been in another time. Having said that though, um, the pandemic has given us a bit of a jolt and even a few weeks ago um, we were given a bit of a jolt too when the earth moved under our feet and some people have started asking the question again are these signs of the end times and the answer as always through history has been yes they are. Uh, God has given signs always through history to keep his people alert and anticipate that the end could come uh, at any time. Uh, throughout history, some well-meaning Christians have even gone so far as to identify various governments or government, uh, government initiatives as the mark of the beast, up to this point always incorrectly. However, having said that, this passage does also say that this secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Uh, Satan's schemes to distract people or to take their trust away from God has been manifest in many, many ways in many many contexts over many many years and so this is already happening amongst us and for many Christians it would be true to say that thinking about the end times is unsettling in part because the general consensus is that the return of Jesus as the return of Jesus comes closer things actually will become more difficult it will be harder to be a Christian there will be more pressure put upon Christians and some anxiety for us too because we're not always quite sure how the end times are going to work out. And for some, the anxiety, quite frankly, is around the possibility of missing out. What happens if Jesus comes back and I'm busy doing something else or I'm deceived by something or I'm just not paying attention? I guess that would be true to say some people have worried about that over the years too. And as we come to the passage we're looking at here today, which is not the final word on these matters either, by the way, um, as we come to chapter 2, it's a bit frustrating for us because in this chapter, Paul says them some things that are very, very clear. 
but he also assumes some things that he's already told the church that we're not party to, we were not privy to, and he hasn't recorded them for, and so there are some unknowns here as well. Understanding um, the context of this passage is important because it's embedded in a letter that Paul wrote to the church and a fortnight ago Darren unpacked chapter 1 for us speaking about uh, how to understand persecution and the struggle that this church was facing in the grander um, scheme of God's righteous judgment. And don't be surprised, Paul said, about what's happening. It's actually all part of God's working out his purposes. And then as we come to chapter 2, Paul shifts gears and addresses some practical problems that were at work in the church in Thessalonica. In chapter 2, he addresses some confusion about the coming of the Lord. And in chapter 3, he continues to address some of the outworkings of this confusion because there were some in the church who thought that the coming, the day of the Lord had already come. Jesus had already returned. And so they just kind of kicked back and were, were waiting idly by uh, to see what would happen next. They had basically disengaged from life. And Paul says, no, that's not the right posture to adopt. Rather than working through this passage kind of verse by verse and unpacking all of the exegetical challenges that there are in here, let's look at some encouragement from this passage. And there's three uh, particularly strong ones flowing through it that I want to emphasise today. And the first one relates to the order of events of the coming of the Lord and our being gathered to him. Now, I've said that very deliberately, our, the coming of the Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him, because Paul states that as two things that happen simultaneously there in verse 1. And it's worth spending some time thinking about this, because throughout history, um, and particularly uh, recently, there has been a view that's developed in the church that is at odds with what Paul just said. It's a view that has been popularised by uh, a number of books and some of you might be familiar with the Left Behind series written by um, Jerry B. Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. Stories that are written <coughs> from a particular view of the end times which includes the idea that Christians are raptured from the earth prior to the coming of the Antichrist, prior to the times of persecution. They're based on what's known theologically, if you want to put some labels to it, as um, a pre-tribulation rapture as opposed to a post-tribulation rapture. So the Christians are taken out of this world before tribulation uh, as against another view which says, no, Christians will journey through that time and when the Lord comes, be gathered to him as um, Paul spells out in this passage. I think it would probably be true to say that the books, those popular books, have done more to shape um, evangelical Christian thinking, at least in America, about end times than the Bible has to some degree. Uh, the separation of these events, um, as is the case in those books, seems also to have been the problem that Paul was trying to address here in, uh, in the Thessalonian church because Paul does not advocate for a pre-tribulation rapture and then a later coming of the Lord. In fact, if that was the case, you kind of need to have two or maybe three comings of Jesus. What Paul understands and what we see um, demonstrated in this passage is that when the Lord comes back, he will gather his church. It's one thing or two things happening at the one time. 
And so Paul then says to the Thessalonians, don't be afraid, don't be anxious about reports, don't be alarmed about these reports, whether they've been come by letter, perhaps even a forged letter, it's suggested here, has been sent to the church. Don't be alarmed, Paul says, uh, by these reports. You'll know when the Lord comes because you will be gathered with him. And it won't be a day that believers are going to miss. It will be such a glorious day, such a a, a tumultuous day, such an awesome day. Uh, It's not going to be something that will sneak past you unknown. You will know primarily, Paul says, because you will be gathered to the Lord. And here's the crux of Paul's message. The coming of Jesus is not going to be a well-hidden secret. The moment he comes, we will be caught up with him. And so there's some encouragement for us even in that. The second encouragement that I see in this passage uh, is found in the order of events. For in addressing the concerns raised by the Thessalonians, Paul said, you can be certain that the day of the Lord has not yet come because there will be some things that precede this happening. And if we come down to verse um, 5, around that area, sorry, verse 3, Paul gives a bit of a schemata. He says, first there will be a rebellion. And then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Now, this is where it gets a bit tricky because Paul takes for granted that his readers know what the rebellion is. And so he says nothing more about it. And we don't know what Paul's talking about. We can speculate. uh, We can kind of draw some evidence from different uh, sources. And as best we can guess, Paul, like other New Testament writers, probably envisage a period of time of increased apostasy politically, religiously, socially. And it would be fair to say that throughout history, Christians have been attuned to the increasing drift in our society into greater autonomy from God, his word and his precepts. And so rightly that our world is heading towards a time of rebellion. You know, the latest thing some despot does or the latest government law or the rise of a particular leader shift uh, or, or a shift in sentiment in society is often pointed to as as evidence of this increasing rebellion. But it seems that in this passage, Paul is uh, describing something proportionally much larger, much more extensive than anything we've experienced up to this time. The leader of this rebellion uh, is named by Paul as the man of lawlessness, one who is in willful opposition to God, who sets himself up as God, nothing less. Indeed, one who seeks to usurp the very power and position of God and sets himself up in God's temple. Now, again, we're not sure what Paul meant by God's temple. Was he talking about the Jerusalem temple or the heavens as God's temple? Uh, We don't know for sure. But what we do know from what Paul says here is that this one will aspire to be like God. In verse 4, Paul describes some of these actions. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that's called God. He will set himself up in God's temple. We just mentioned that. He will proclaim himself as God. For a time, there is something holding him back. And Paul, again, doesn't give us a strong clue about who or what that is. But whoever or whatever it is that's holding him back will be revealed at the proper time. 
Paul goes on to say that the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. And we've mentioned that already. This is, there's already stuff going on in our world that is evidence of this yet to come and perhaps parallels uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 23, where John said that the Antichrist is coming and yet even now there are many Antichrists who have come. There have been quite a number through history who have manifest characteristics of the Antichrist. They, ri they rise and they fall, but none have risen to the heights that Paul is describing for this man of lawlessness here. At the right time, however, the scripture says this lawless one is revealed, but... And here's some encouragement. He will be overthrown by Jesus, who by the breath of his mouth will overthrow him and destroy, the, destroy him by the splendor of his coming. So the glorious coming of Christ will overpower this lawless one. Now, where is all the encouragement in this? Because it seems like quite a tumultuous time. Well, we note um, in many respects the man of lawlessness tries to replicate things that belong to Jesus. He will appear in the same way that Jesus will appear. He'll set himself up in the temple and seek to rule in the same manner that Jesus will ultimately be enthroned in the temple. He'll proclaim himself as God when in fact Jesus will be worshipped of God. In all of these things, this man of lawlessness who aspires to be Jesus will be inferior in this process, though he boasts and grasps at power, though he may deceive many who are perishing, as Paul says in verse 10, in the end he is destined for destruction. And note how he's destroyed. He is overpowered by the breath of Jesus' mouth. The original language actually says he will be overpowered by the Spirit. He will be destroyed by the splendor of the coming of Jesus. But it's kind of interesting too, just to note the orderliness that there is in this passage. And it's an orderliness that's reflected in God's revelation through history. Go back with me to Genesis, for example. There's almost a, a metronomic stepping through of creation, isn't there? God did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. There's an orderliness to what God does. Believers are encouraged to adopt orderliness in worship because our God is a God of order. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, you know, we don't organize our services as some kind of free-for-all melee. Uh, we do it in a manner that reflects the character of God. And even here at the end, when it appears that everything is out of control, when the world is just winding down into this terrible uh, lawlessness, God's order will still be observed. Things are not out of hand. God has not lost control. We can be encouraged in that. And that brings us to our third encouragement, and that is that in the midst of all this, we are secure. We can be assured that God will not let go of those that he has. We're told that the times will not be easy. Uh, we're not told that we'll be protected from the troubles that the man of lawlessness brings. But look at some of the certainties expressed in these verses. In verse 9, for instance, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. His coming will be accompanied by all sorts of counterfeit miracles and signs and wonders and all sorts of evil uh, that deceives those who are perishing. But who is it that's perishing? 
it's those who've refused to love the truth and be saved. It's those who have rejected the message of the gospel and turned their backs on God. And the consequence of their choice, important to say that, the consequence of their choice in verse 11 is that God will send them a powerful delusion so that they'll believe a lie and be condemned. One of the implications of this verse is that those who love the truth and hold fast to the truth will not be deceived by counterfeit miracles and wonders. And so in these final few verses, Paul encourages the church to stand firm. One of the implications that can be drawn from what Paul says about the sequence of events around the end times is that believers ought to be prepared to experience persecution and distress for the sake of the gospel during this time of rebellion and the appearance of the Antichrist. But, as Paul points out, uh, although this is already at work, our lives are secure. Paul takes it for granted that believes will, uh, that sorry Paul takes it for granted that believers will be persecuted as he explained in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 4 the Thessalonians had already realized the truth of this but the blessed hope that Paul speaks about in 1 Thessalonians uh, sorry in Titus chapter 2 verse 13 the thing that we wait for is not an escape or a rapture but this glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ we long for that we look for that and appearing that will bring vindication and relief to God's people in the midst of their persecution persecution that we do see being worked out here in 1 and 2 Thessalonians and most significantly perhaps most significantly of all this passage encourages us to keep our eyes on Jesus in the midst of these troubles as the storm clouds have gathered through history or as there have been seismic shifts in the political landscape the social landscape of our world you know speculation about the Antichrist has risen and fallen accordingly uh, curiously, the list of names of those who have been posited as potential identify, uh, identification of this person are, are as long as my arm. Our real interest ought not be in that person, but in Christ. I came across um, this interesting commentary just on this just recently and conclude with this thought. Imagine if the Christian view of the end times was centred on preparing for Christ rather than the Antichrist. That's the challenge that Paul puts before the Thessalonians. Imagine if the Christian view centred on the mark of the Lamb rather than the mark of the beast. Centred on redeeming the earth instead of escaping it and centred on hope rather than fear. And there's the key message for us in this passage today, centering on Christ, our hope. Uh, we sang a few moments about uh, a few moments ago about a world that's characterised by fear, but there is hope, and the hope, of course, is found in Christ. And Paul wrote to these people who were fearful, who were anxious, who were uncertain of what the future looked like, with the intention of having them focus their eyes firmly on Christ, that they might grasp that hope, and as he said there uh, in Titus, to look to this glorious this glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ let's pray God we do thank you that your word reflects your character consistently from beginning to end 
from the very start of creation, you are the one who set the world in place and put in place order and structure. At this time, as we look at the very end, whenever that might be, Lord, there is order and structure because you, God, are a God who have been working out your purposes according to your plan, nobody else's, from the beginning of time and will continue to do, do so through until the culmination of time. Lord, we thank you that you are Lord. And again today we would affirm our desire to live in submission and humility to you because you know better the beginning from the end than anyone else. Father, as we think about these issues, they can be unquieting. Dis, uh, uh, they can cause uh, a, a lack of settlement in our hearts, some anxiety and fear. But again, we pray today that you would help us grasp the eternal truth that you will never let go of any who belong to you. Those you, whom you have chosen will be held firm and fast in your hands. Lord, we thank you and pray that you might count many more yet amongst that number. Father, we give you thanks again for your word and pray that you will continue to watch over your people wherever we might be. In Jesus' name, amen.